Would you turn with me this morning to Psalm 4? <laughs> Are we losing children? It happens. Feels a little, uh, maybe, maybe this is just me, feels a little low energy today. So here's an idea. Let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning, uh, shake out some of our, uh, our sittingness. Uh, this is Psalm 4. This is God's word for us, his people, this morning. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And Lord, we thank you this morning uh, that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would show us Jesus in these words. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So World War I is one of the reasons that we struggle to read the Psalms well. And here's why that is. Before World War I in the Western world, poetry was largely written as what we now call public poetry. Public poetry is poetry or words or songs that are written primarily to shape or form an audience. So they were written for the people that would read them to give them some response, to give them some feeling to shape and spur them on to some other ideal. After World War I, poetry in the Western world has largely been private poetry. And private poetry is poetry that is meant to give an expression of the author's experience. It's meant to sort of describe this experience, and it only really matters to the reader insofar as that experience might overlap with some experience of your own. It's helpful for us to even think about this distinction because the Psalms are written to us as public poetry. The Psalms are written, in other words, not to primarily give voice to the author's private experiences, but rather they are meant to shape us 
and to form us, to make us feel certain things and to make us long for certain things and to call us outside of ourselves to pursue certain ideals. And we actually see that here in Psalm 4 in the title. Uh, and I didn't, this is something I learned like when I was in seminary, the little like all caps there next to the, the psalm, that's part of the biblical text. Um, that's not something that's added to your Bible from translators, that is part of the biblical text. So Psalm 4 begins with, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And what that tells us from the very beginning is it reminds us this is public poetry. This psalm was written not to give voice to some experience that David had. This psalm was written for God's people to use in worship. This psalm is written, in other words, to shape and form God's people. And one of the things that Psalm 4 is doing is Psalm 4 is helping us to calibrate our expectations for life in this world And it is helping us also think about a faithful response to life in this world. And how does Psalm 4 do that? What is it teaching us about life in the world? And I think you see it in verses 1 and 2. And what you see there is that David, who writes this psalm, has experienced and continues to experience adversity, difficulty, hardship, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. He's in distress as he's writing these words. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. And we see also in verse 2 that what seems to be happening in David's life is that he is being victimized by false promises and by slander. People are turning his honor into shame because they are loving vain words and they are seeking after lies. David is experiencing relational adversity as we look here at Psalm 4. Friends, this is teaching us to expect that we will experience adversity. We will experience hardship. We will experience difficulty in this life. And that might be relational hardship and difficulty like we see David experiencing here. We might experience broken relationships in our lives. That could also be all kinds of other adversity as well. It could be pain and sickness and death. Those are adversities that we will experience in this life. It could be the fact that our work is frustrating and sometimes feels like it is vain or fruitless. We will experience adversity and we will experience adversity in every sphere of our lives. And the reason for that is that sin has broken God's good world. Everything that sin has touched is a place that we can and might and likely will experience adversity. And so Psalm 4 gives us instructions. It gives us really an illustration of what it looks like to respond to adversity in faithfulness. 
That's what this is teaching. And we're going to walk through this. I've got a six-point sermon for you this morning. Everyone is like, let's just go home. <laughs> we're going to go quick. Uh, these, are, these are quick points. Um, but again, I think it's helpful that we think about what it means to respond faithfully to adversity. Because we live in a world that really encourages us not to respond to adversity, but to sort of just cope with it. We live in a world that sort of encourages us to sort of numb ourselves or to self-medicate ourselves against adversity. So when we are stressed out, we tend to sort of retreat into our phones or we binge watch Netflix, or we eat and drink too much, or we do things that just seem mindless because honestly dealing with the stress of the adversity seems like it's too much. But Psalm 4 is encouraging us and it is teaching us that self-medication and coping and numbing is not necessarily, is not really ever the way God would call us to deal with adversity. So we have six things that we see specifically in verses three to five uh, that illustrate for us what a faithful response to adversity looks like. And here's the first thing, you see it there in verse three, and that is we are called to remember something. And the thing we are called to remember is that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And he hears their prayers. The first thing we are called to do as God's people in adversity is to remember this. God has set apart the godly for himself, which means God isn't just setting them apart for some task. He's not just setting them apart to do some work for him in the world. It says God is setting them apart. God has set them apart for himself, for fellowship with them. God delights to be in fellowship with his people. That's the first thing that we have to remember when we are in adversity. God delights to have fellowship with his people and he looks after his own. We're a forgetful people, aren't we? We forget things quickly. Even things that we know, even things that are bone deep, we often forget in the moments that they matter the most. It's instructive for us that dozens of times in the Bible, the Lord commands his people to remember. He doesn't do that because they're great at remembering. He does that because we are great at forgetting. We are called over and over to remember. This was driven home for me one time in a painful way. Uh, about 10 years ago, I came home from work, and it had been a difficult uh, season uh, of ministry. Um, I think we had some financial stress as well, and it was just, things were hard. And I walked in the door, and I, someone made a comment to me. One, either one of my kids or Jen or somebody made a comment, and I just lost it. I just lost my temper, and I kicked a laundry basket. Um, which, you know, super mature and great. So I felt awesome about that and immediately filled with like shame and frustration and just like self-loathing. I just like went in the backyard and like sat down in a lawn chair. And Jack, my son, who at that time I think was four or five, 
came out to me and put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, Dad, don't you remember that God will take care of us? It's like, man, yes. In adversity, in hardship, my five-year-old remembered the thing that I needed to remember. We have to remember in hardship that the Lord delights to have fellowship with his people and he looks after his own. The second thing that we see as we respond to adversity, we see in verse 4. Be angry. Be angry. The Bible tells you to be angry. And what the Bible is getting at, what Psalm 4 is getting at when it tells you to be angry is to remember that all adversity, all hardship, all brokenness in this world ultimately can be traced back to sin and its effects. As those who love God, we are called to be angry at the brokenness of the world. We are called to be angry when we see people being taken advantage of, when we see creation being treated in an irresponsible and unsustainable way, when we see sin and violation and abuse and brokenness, we are called to be angry. When we see sickness, when we see cancer, we are called to be angry. In John 11, Jesus stands outside the tomb of one of his best friends, a man named Lazarus. And it says in the, in the uh, ESV translation, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit. And that doesn't even begin to capture what is actually being said in the Greek text. Because it uses the righteous indignation that a war horse would have as it charges into battle. That's the word that is used in the Greek. Jesus stands outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, not just grief-stricken, but angry at death. We are called as God's people to be angry at sin and its effects. We have to learn godly anger. Friends, we are called as God's people in Jesus to love our neighbors. And one uh, author says, love detests what destroys the beloved. Love detests what destroys the beloved. If we are called to love our neighbors, we are called to hate the things that would ultimately destroy them, sin and its effects. That's the second thing that we do as we respond to adversity. We have to learn to be angry in a righteous way. The third thing we have to do comes right after be angry, which is do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. You see it there in verse 4. This is helpful for us because this also reminds us that even as we are called to be angry at the effects of sin uh, in the world, sin is never the answer to sin and its effects in the world. In other words, we can never justify sin on the basis of the fact that we are responding to something that is sinful. And sometimes we are really tempted to do this. We are tempted to use sinful means to fix sin, or at least to address sin, 
and its effects. And we often justify it by saying that the other person or the other group of people started it. Our kids do it, and honestly, we still do it ourselves. And so we speak in ways that are unloving. We speak in ways that are harsh and contemptuous, responding to things that we feel like are sinful. And in doing that, we are addressing sin with sin. Friends, in the gospel, in Jesus, the ends never justify the means. We are called to live in a different way. In one place in the Bible you see that way illustrated so beautifully is an event in the life of David himself. David has been anointed king over Israel and the king that has been rejected by God is pursuing him and seeking to kill him. And David has multiple opportunities where he could have killed King Saul and in some ways would have been right to do so, but David says no. If God wants me to be king, he will make me king. It's not mine to take for myself. Friends, we are called to live in a different kind of way. We are called to be angry, but not to sin. So not sinning, that's the third way that we respond to adversity. Here's the fourth. We must reflect. We are called to reflection. You see it there in verse 4. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. The Bible is calling us to silence. It's calling us to ponder. It is calling us to reflect. And part of the reason it's calling us to reflect is because we have to remember that adversity that we experience in this life is ultimately traced back to sin. And therefore, we are called to reflect on the sin in our own hearts when we experience adversity. Not because God is punishing us for our sin, but because we must learn to hate not only the effects of sin in the world and our experience of that, but we must learn to hate sin itself. So we are called to be people of reflection, hating the sin that is within our own hearts, even as we hate the effects of sin in the world around us. When is the last time that you sat in silence? Think about that. When's the last time you sat in silence? Maybe it was the silent confession this morning. In fact, I have a feeling that might be That might be it. I also suspect that that's the most anxiety-inducing part of the service for many of you. It's hard for me to stand up here and be silent in front of people, uh, knowing that I'm the one who gets to decide when we're done being silent. It's hard. That's why so many of us go to bed with headphones in. Like, we, we are scared of the silence. We live noisy lives. A few years ago, one pastor was producing a series of videos that sort of creatively presented various aspects of the Christian life, and he did one on noise. And in the middle of it, the screen went black, and there was 30 seconds of silence. And the publisher of these videos was flooded with complaints 
that the video cut off halfway through. Because no one could make it through the 30-second silence. People just thought, oh well, they forgot to include the rest of the video and just turned it off after about 15 seconds. It's unreal. We are so bad at silence. But silence and reflection are central to a life lived in the gospel. Friends, in reflection, we must learn to become students of our own hearts. We need to think about how we feel. We need to think about why things affect us in particular ways. We need to think about why it is we are scared of particular things. Why does something make me happy and delighted? And why does something make me feel sad? I think I've told you all this before, but a few years ago, I was um, ordering a book on Amazon, and I clicked buy it now, and I just got this like rush of like something happy. I don't even know what it was, and like, but 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 I I I've, I saw it for the first time. Like I'd probably experienced the rush of like feeling smart every time I bought a book, but that was the first time I I actually noticed it, and that made me think. That made me reflect, like, why is it that, like, buying this book that I probably had no intention of actually reading, why did that make me feel good? And I realized that buying books like that made me feel smart. It made me feel intelligent. It made me feel like I was going to read it. Or it made me feel like I was going to at least have the knowledge at my disposal, Um, Like I could kind of say that I knew it. People could be like, hey, have you read that book? And I could be like, read it, I own it. (laughs) But if I hadn't reflected on that, I would never have seen just the idolatry of my own heart, of wanting to be seen as smart and competent and intelligent. Friends, if we never reflect, we become thoughtless people. And people who are thoughtless end up doing more damage to others than people who are malicious. Because thoughtless people don't know that they're hurting other people. Malicious people at least know they're trying to hurt other people. Thoughtless people think they're well-intended, and so they just leave a trail of destruction behind them. We are called to be students of our own hearts so that we can see sin and we can understand God's grace for us. And we can turn away from sin in our own lives. Reflection is central to repentance. That's the fourth thing that we do as we respond to adversity. Here's the fifth. We're called in verse 5 to worship in the midst of adversity. You see it in verse 5. Offer right sacrifices. David is saying there, to worship according to how the Lord has required he be worshipped. We are to worship in the midst of adversity. And that's where it's helpful for us to realize that worship is not primarily something we experience. Worship is something we do, and in doing our worship, we are actually transformed by it. The Bible tells us over and over that we become like what we worship. 
Which is why worshiping idols ultimately is dehumanizing to us. We end up acting like idols that can't speak or see or hear or taste or touch. We become less human, but when we worship the living God, we become more alive. And when we worship, we are reminded again and again that adversity is not the truest thing about us. God's love for us in Jesus is. And friends, it's just helpful to note that when things are hard and things are difficult, coming together with God's people and worshiping is not pretending that things are fine. Coming together to worship is bringing all of our lives to God. It's bringing everything we're experiencing, every fear we have, every hope we have, every grief we have, every desire we have, we bring them all here together. And we process them and we offer them to God and we do all of that in light of the gospel. Friends, this is why we worship with the lights on. We worship with the lights on. Because we are coming together as God's people, not to escape, not to have an experience of God's grace and goodness, but to offer everything that we have and everything that we are to our Lord and Savior and find that he has nothing but grace for us. We do that together each and every Sunday. That's the fifth thing we do. In adversity, we worship. And here's the sixth. We trust. You see it also there in verse 5. Put your trust in the Lord. Trust is acting on what we believe is true. And trust and faith are functionally the same concept in the Bible. And so this is helpful for us in reminding us that faith is not something that is primarily theoretical. Faith is not something that is primarily intellectual. Faith actually affects the way that you lean into the world. Do we lean into the world based upon what we believe is most true about it? And how different would our response to the world be if we believe that God's love for us in Jesus is the truest thing about us instead of our circumstances, instead of our hardship, instead of our adversity. In fact, I think that idea of trusting really fills out all of verses 3 to 5, which lay out these responses to adversity, because all of our response is meant to be done in a context of faith and trust in God's goodness. So that's our response to adversity. Six things. Remembering, be angry, don't sin, reflect, worship, and trust. And then we get to the end of Psalm 4. In verses 7 and 8, and David notes this posture that he has in the midst of adversity, in the midst of his response. Verse 7 says that he has joy. He has joy, and in fact, he has more joy in adversity than the ungodly have in their abundance. And in verse 8, David says he has peace. 
And the peace there, the, the Hebrew word is shalom, which represents so much more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness and flourishing. So David says, even in the midst of adversity, I am flourishing in such a way that I can sleep with confidence. Friends, when we think about joy and peace, we have to realize that in the Christian life, those are not fundamentally about our circumstances. They are about living in light of what is most true. And that's why we can have joy and peace even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of brokenness. But here's my fear this morning. My fear is that we might be tempted to read Psalm 4 and think that these faithful responses to adversity, these six things we looked at, are somehow a recipe or a technique for achieving joy and peace, as if the real message of the sermon is, here are six ways you can have joy or peace. But friends, let's look briefly as we conclude at the source of joy and peace. Because you see it there in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7, David says, You, Lord, have put joy in my heart. In verse 8, David says, You alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, friends, joy and peace are not an accomplishment. They're not something we have earned. They're not some payment God gives us for responding faithfully in the midst of adversity. They're not an achievement. They are a gift from God. Joy and peace are a gift that God gives. If joy and peace are ultimately about living in light of what is most true, we have to remember that what is most true is God's love for us in Jesus. And in Jesus, God deals with the very source of our adversity. He deals with sin and its effects. And so, friends, as we think about joy and peace as God's people now in Christ, we can only think about them in light of his death and resurrection where sin is undone. Where sin and its effects are ripped out of the world ultimately by their roots. God's love for us in Jesus is the truest thing about us, and it is the foundation of our joy and peace. And what this means is that as we think about responding faithfully in the midst of adversity, we have to realize that our response itself grows out of the joy and peace that we already have in Jesus. That's why we read Titus 2 this morning for the New Testament reading. God's grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. It is grace that teaches us to walk in obedience. It is grace that teaches us to walk in faith. And Jesus is shaping these things in us. Jesus is teaching us to remember. Jesus is teaching us godly anger. Jesus is teaching us not to sin. He's teaching us to reflect and to worship and to trust. 
Friends, this is why Paul says in Philippians 2 that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are called to do these things. For it is God at work in us, teaching us to will and to do for his good pleasure. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, which has appeared in the person and work of Jesus, and which is even now training us to renounce ungodliness. Father, we thank you for the joy and the peace that are not aspirations, but are ours in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would help joy and peace to not just be something that is true of us in theory, but to be our actual lived experience, day in and day out. Even now, Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would take these ordinary elements, this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup, and use them for an extraordinary purpose, to anchor us in the truth of Christ's work on our behalf. We pray these things in his name. Amen.